Ready to enjoy the word? Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Let me begin, though, by asking Teresa to put up on the screen a picture for us. And I'll ask you, church family, if you would have any idea who this gentleman is. Any idea? Well, I'm not surprised, so let me introduce you. This is Dave Dahl. D-A-H-L is his, how he spells his last name. Dave's a former convict, felon, who spent 15 years in prison for armed robbery and assault and drug dealing. Dave got out of prison in 2005, and he began to bake bread with all organic ingredients. He would take 100 loaves to a local county fair up in the northwest where he lived, and he would sell them, and they would just sell like hotcakes. So Dave knew that he had a good idea, or really a a good-tasting idea, and he eventually grew that idea into a company called Dave's Killer Bread. In fact, you might have a loaf of his bread at your house right now. I know we've got one at our house right now. Well, his company grew exponentially. Eventually, he was selling bread from coast to coast and hiring ex-cons because they were really good workers. Dave sold his company in 2015 for $275 million to a really large food giant. But even to this day, his, his picture and his name is still on every loaf of Dave's killer bread. Now, church family, I tell you this story because bread comes into view for us in a major way today as part of our ongoing study of the Gospel of John. You know, it's one thing to say that you can make bread, that you can make really good bread, and that you can make a lot of money making really good bread. But it is something else entirely when you can say, I am the bread. I am the bread. The bread that can give a sinner life without end, eternal life with God forever. That's something altogether different. That's exactly what is before us, church family, as you would join me this morning in the sixth chapter of the Gospel of John, part of our ongoing study series in this amazing book. John chapter 6, if you need a Bible this morning, just raise your hand. We'll, we'll be glad to share a copy of God's Word with you today. And, and if you don't own a Bible, then you keep this one, write your name in it. It's a gift from our church family to you. There's a note page in your bulletin. If you would retrieve that, that would be helpful. And if you would, please silence that phone. We'll all be grateful if you do that. Now, here in chapter 6, Jesus will say no less than four times, I am the bread of life. In fact, if you look on your note page, this statement by Jesus, I am the bread of life, is just the first of seven different times in John's gospel when Jesus, in the course of speaking to a large crowd, sometimes to just an intimate group of his closest disciples, he'll make a statement that he introduces with the words, I am. And so they become... They have come to be known as the seven I am's of John. 
And each time he does this, as I say, seven different times, he tells us something wonderful about himself. I am the bread of life here in chapter 6. I am the light of the world in chapter 8, Jesus says. I am the door of the sheep in chapter 10. I am the good shepherd also in chapter 10. I am the resurrection and the life in chapter 11. I am the way, the truth, and the life in chapter 14. And I am the true vine in chapter 15. Seven titles that Jesus takes to himself, each one a metaphor of self-disclosure, a self-portrait, revealing to us something about Jesus that we might not otherwise know about him. But more than that, with each of these I am's, Jesus reveals something about his relationship to us, his role in our salvation, something about his saving work in our lives, Sometimes his ongoing role after we have come to faith in him. Very candid, very personal, very intimate are these I am portraits. And the first comes to us here today in John chapter 6. I am the bread of life. Jesus says that in verse 35. It's referenced in verse 41. He'll say it again in verse 48 and again in verse 51. Do you suppose Jesus wants to come away, wants us to come away with something about him, church family, when he says it four times? I am the bread of life. You know, sometimes the Bible will repeat something three times to give it emphasis. Like in Isaiah 6, God is holy, holy, holy. That's emphasizing his holiness, and we we get it. That's a three-time repetition. That's pretty rare when the Bible does that, but it is super rare, super rare indeed, when the Bible will repeat something four times. But Jesus does that here in chapter 6. Now, last time, if you were here last Sunday, Rob broke the seal on chapter 6, and together you shared the first 21 verses of this chapter. Those verses actually form the backdrop for what we're going to be sharing and seeing together today. So if you recall, there are two major events that take place in those opening 21 verses of the chapter. Before Jesus says, I am the bread of life, two major things happen. In verses 1 to 14, Jesus miraculously feeds 5,000 people. In fact, when you add the women and the children... To this miracle, it's about fifteen to 18,000 people. And he does it, if you recall, with five loaves of bread, don't miss that, and two fish from a little boy's picnic basket. And all of this happens, we'll put a map up on the screen for us here, all of this happens over here on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, which is a large lake there in Israel. And the miracle happens on that eastern shore. At the end of this extraordinary day where this miracle happens, verses 14 and 15 tell us this. When the people saw the sign that he had done, that Jesus had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet, the Messiah, who is to come into the world. Perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to a mountain by himself. 
So this enormous crowd has been completely blown away by what Jesus has done through this miracle. He must be the Messiah. He's got to be the Messiah. And oh, what a king he would make, they're saying. Fifteen to 18,000 are saying that. Well, we know from the parallel accounts of this moment in the other Gospels, Jesus quickly disperses his, or gets his disciples and he puts them, the 12 of them, in a boat and he sends them off to the other side of the lake. He doesn't want those disciples getting caught up in the, the fervor of this moment where they're wanting to make him the king. So he disperses the crowd and then withdraws to a place where he can pray by himself. Well, darkness falls. The disciples are on the lake in the boat. And then comes verses 16 to 21. A terrific storm descends on the lake. And there the disciples are fighting for all that they're worth just to keep their boat afloat. And Jesus comes to them walking on the water and he he delivers them. The, the moment that he steps into the boat, the text tells us the storm ceases and the boat is instantly on the other side of the lake. Second miracle. Two extraordinary miracles. One shows not only Jesus' compassion and his awareness of human need as he feeds these people, but it demonstrates his creative power to, to be able to take a little and multiply it into an extraordinary amount. In this case, more than could even be consumed by the people. Twelve baskets full of food are left over when everybody has had their fill. It's an amazing miracle. The other miracle puts on display the Son of God's power over the physical world and over forces, even suspending natural laws in the atmosphere, gravity, water, travel, time, all of that. And that's just for that little group of 12 guys. They're the only ones who know about this. Powerful lesson for them, though. They are helpless, and Jesus comes into their storm. And there's nothing that he can't do, nothing too hard for him. We need Jesus in our boat, right? That's the lesson that comes out of that. Man, we need Jesus in our boat. It is a stormy, dangerous, fallen world. I want Jesus in my boat, and I know you do too. Well, as the sun comes up the next day, the people who were fed so marvelously yesterday realize that Jesus is no longer there on the eastern side of the lake. Verse 22. The next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So, so, so get this in your mind. The news about this miracle has now circulated around the entire lake. And it's a big lake. But that news has traveled all the way around so that people in Tiberias are getting in the boats and they're going to go over to the place where Jesus had done the miracle. Verse 24. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into boats and they went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Stop for a moment. Now, now we know from verse 59 
that everything we're about to see and hear going forward happens at the synagogue, the, the Jewish meeting house in Capernaum. So, so keep that in mind. Everybody's now in Capernaum on the west side of the lake. And the crowd is wondering, how did this happen? You were over there on the mountain. The 12 guys that were with you got in the boat without you. They crossed the sea. We just crossed the sea, and you were already here. How did that happen? Now, how easy it would have been for Jesus to say, well, I walked on water across the lake to get here. That's, that's how I got here. I walked. But, of course, he knows better than to say that, right? Why? Why? Well, <laughs> yeah, they're gonna, the, the crowd's going to hear that and go, oh, yes, this is even better than we thought. What a king he will make. Man, he can keep our stomachs full all the time and, and he, can, he can keep our boats afloat and he can, he can walk on the water and he, we won't sink and, and he'll defeat the Romans who rule over us and he'll make a great kingdom here on earth and we'll be the beneficiaries of all of his power. Oh yes, he must become our king. How useful. This Jesus will be to us. That's where they're at. How useful he will be for us. But Jesus, of course, will have nothing to do with this. Because Jesus didn't come into the world to be useful, did he? No. He came into the world to be a savior, didn't he? Jesus didn't come into the world to assist sinners in meeting desires that they already had before they met him. He came into the world to change our desires. To change our desires so that he becomes the one great all-consuming desire of our heart, right? That's why he came. Jesus didn't come to, to give out bread. Jesus came to what? To be bread. To be the bread. So let's keep reading. You'll see what I mean. Rabbi... When did you come here? Verse 25, verse 26, then says, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him the Father has set his seal. And then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? In other, words, in other words, do what you do. What do we have to do to be able to do what you do? Jesus answered them. This is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. And so they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. May it never stop. Jesus said to them, I am the bread. The bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. 
we say amen and amen. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. Now, church family, this is about as far as we're going to get this morning as we try to unpack the text together. But I do want to keep reading so that you catch the overall sense of what is happening in this moment. So beginning again now in verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of the Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me not that anyone has seen the father except he who is from god he has seen the father truly truly i say to you whoever believes has eternal life i am the bread of life your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die i am the living bread that came down from heaven if anyone eats of this bread he will live forever and the bread that i will give for the life of the world is my flesh it's a reference to the cross isn't it wow Verse 52, the Jews then disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Now, the dialogue keeps going, but we're going to stop here for the moment because I give, it gives you a sense of what, what Jesus is facing. The overall reaction of this, this large gathering at the synagogue in Capernaum, would you say it's positive or negative? Their reaction to Jesus, positive or negative? definitely negative they're grumbling they're mumbling they've argued and ultimately according to verse 66 which we did not read they're going to leave jesus because of what he's just said they're going to leave him in droves verse 66 after this many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him so this is a watershed moment in this unfolding story of our Savior. Now, there's obviously so much more going on here than we will have time to look at today that we're going to have to return here for probably a couple more mornings. So I'm just giving you a heads up. This isn't a one and done for us at all. This is one of the most challenging sections in all of John's gospel, maybe the most challenging. But let's go back now and let's begin to sort out some of this together, starting with Jesus' audience, as you see there on your note page. This is a large crowd, and the text gives us some clues as to the kind of people that heard Jesus say, I am the bread of life. One group present that day we could call the materialists. This group really struggles when Jesus wants to change the subject from physical food to spiritual truth. 
They're locked into a, to a physical world, a material world. That's all they can think about. And so Jesus nails this group when he says bluntly in verse 26, this is how the whole thing opens up. Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me, not because you saw the sign, the miracle yesterday, but because you ate your fill of the bread. You went home and you weren't hungry. That's why you're here today. You want more bread. So many in Jesus' day had a wrong idea about who and what the Messiah foretold in the Old Testament would be when he appeared. Most, when they thought of the Messiah, thought of a political savior, a political deliverer. They wanted out from under Roman rule and they wanted the glory days of King David and King Solomon and they wanted political solutions and they wanted material prosperity and that happened with a, with a strong king in place and, 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 and they thought that's what the Messiah would be. He would deliver that. They look at Jesus and I don't know how else to say it, but they look at Jesus, the materialist does, and, and sees some kind of a divine vending machine. Just kind of spits it out. You, you pull the deal and out comes something. Good. And Jesus knew this is how they were looking at him. You're seeking me not because you saw an amazing miracle yesterday and you want to know better the one who performed that miracle. That's not why you're here. You're here because you ate your fill of the loaves. You seek me to satisfy your physical appetite, not because you really want to know me, who I am and what I can be for you. It's interesting. You know, missionaries in the past in third world countries often observed in their work what they referred to as rice Christians. You ever heard that term? Rice Christians? These are people who would quickly convert to Christianity because the missionary had access to food or to medical aid or or some other physical benefit that could be realized if they just converted and became a Christian. The problem with rice Christians is that when the rice isn't there, neither are they, right? Because it has nothing to do with a, a changed heart or Jesus. It has everything to do with material stuff. So Jesus tells the crowd in verse 27, do not work for the food that perishes, the material stuff, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Well, the materialists were not happy with this answer. Do today what you did yesterday, Jesus, and then do that tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day. Just keep on doing that. They were stuck in this place of only being able to think about material, physical things. No room for thinking about spiritual reality. Does that sound familiar in our day? A culture stuck in the material? No room for the spiritual? Well, others in the crowd that day were not materialists. They were legalists. When they heard Jesus say, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures, they latched onto the word work. They asked Jesus in verse 28, what must we do to be doing the works of God? 
And if these people couldn't get a free lunch, then they wondered if there weren't some rules that they could follow that would, would allow them to get to the same place. If we do this and this and this, and God is pleased with what we're doing, then God will come through not only with food, but apparently with food that won't spoil. It won't get moldy. They think, how cool is that? But they're missing the point, right? Totally missing the point. Stuck in the same physical place as the materialist. You know, throughout Christian history, if you know the church, and I know you know the, the history of the church, the church has often fallen into the sin of legalism. It's, it's just part of the sad story. Why? Well, church family, because it's a lot easier to make rules and do rules than to do relationship. It's way easier to do the rules. God wants a relationship. He wants to love and he wants to be loved back. That calls for humility. That calls for an admission of sin, an admission of need. It calls for a putting uh, off of self, putting God first. It's looking away from the material and looking to the spiritual. If I can just do the rules, though, I just, I just want to do the rules. I want to I stay in control. And, and, and I want to be able to take credit for what I get. Right? I'll do the rules. Legalism feeds pride. And pride keeps us from God. Jesus didn't come to help people earn bread. He came to be bread, right? What a difference. That calls for relationship, not rules. But simply put, some don't want to go that deep with God. They'd rather have a set of rules. Jesus wasn't about to go there. When the crowd asked him for a list of works, plural, in verse 28, that they could do, Jesus gives them this really cool answer. Verse 29, this is the work singular. One thing. There's only one thing that you need to do, Jesus says. Not a whole list of things, just one. Believe in him whom God has sent. Do that. One thing. He wants a genuine love relationship. That kind of relationship can't be built with rules and it can't be bought with performance. The materialist saw Jesus as useful to get what they wanted. The legalist saw Jesus as an assistant who would enable them to earn their own way. Neither wanted a relationship, neither wanted a redeemer. Then a third group in the crowd that day, we'll call them the sensationalists. These are the folks who... Next, ask Jesus an amazing question. And it's amazing because it's so absurd. Verse 30. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe? What work do you perform? Now, church family, get this. The the day before, this group sees Jesus feed 15,000 people from a picnic basket. Two fish and five loaves. Now they want a sign. Give us a sign. Now, obviously, this was an amazing miracle, so amazing that 
it motivated them to all get into boats and row across the lake and come to Capernaum. So they've seen an amazing miracle. It's, this is, this is mind blowing stuff, but it was yesterday. Now they want something new today. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Does this sound somewhat familiar as you survey the American church landscape? There's a certain segment of the church, sadly, that is forever on the hunt for what will make the spiritual adrenaline flow. Would you agree with that? I got to have something new. It's got to be something exciting, entertaining, some new experience, and it has to happen all the time. That's where I want to be. That's the happening church. Keep the crowd wowed, and you keep the crowd. Seems to be the philosophy of some churches. Those folks are here in John 6. This group had an experience with Jesus, an experience, and it blows their minds. They believe it. They can't believe that moment happened, and they want another moment like that. And then another and another. They want Jesus to take them from one mountaintop to the next mountaintop with no valleys. They want the rewards again without a relationship. Jesus didn't come to give us endless spiritual highs, did he, church? That isn't why he came. He came to give us a chance to know the living God personally, yes? To know the living God personally. That's why he came. Ah, but this is, a, this is a clever crowd. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, Moses gave them bread from heaven to eat. Can we manipulate this guy with scripture? Maybe we can. But Jesus doesn't even let the ink dry before he quickly corrects their error. Verse 32, truly, truly, or or I guarantee you, it was not Moses who gave our forefathers the bread from heaven. The manna that sustained Israel for 40 years in the wilderness, that, that didn't come from Moses. But my father gave them that miraculous bread. And now, listen to what he says. And now, my father is seeking to give you, all of you, the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Is this crowd connecting with Jesus? Are they getting what he's saying? They're not getting it, are they? They are so stuck, still thinking only in physical terms, thinking only about literal loaves of bread. Sir, give us this bread. Always we want this bread. Literal, physical bread. Now, church family, I don't know if Jesus ever rolled his eyes in frustration as he was speaking to an audience I don't know that, but if he ever did do that, this has got to be the moment when he did it. My father wants to give you the true bread from heaven, and the true bread is he 
who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Yeah, 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 yeah. Give us, give us that bread, more of it, all of it. We want it, we want it, we want it. And Jesus must have just rolled his eyes, shook his head. And finally, he just needs to come right out and say it because they're not getting it. Verse 35, I am the bread, right? Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. It's one of the great verses in the Gospel of John. Reinforced three more times, 41, 48, 51. Now, the response of the crowd tells us a lot about the difference between what people think they need and what God knows they need. So often the very thing people need is, is the last thing that they're looking for. Most in this crowd this day wanted to do business with Jesus, the buffet master, or Jesus, the rule writer, or Jesus, the wow factor. Jesus, the bread of life? Eh. That didn't resonate with their need. For most on this day, that was true, but not for all. Happy to say that. There are always some, small in number and usually not very vocal, who are hungry for the bread. The bread that Jesus is really speaking about. They're hungry for him. As we're going to see in a couple of weeks, Jesus' closest disciples, they get it. They understood what the crowd was missing. They get the message. They weren't there for fish sandwiches and they weren't there for a new list of rules to keep and they weren't there to get on a Jesus pep rally deal. They were there because they believed and they knew that Jesus truly was from God. He was the Messiah. He's the bread of life. All they needed was right there in that moment. They didn't need anything else. They get it. That'll be a fun morning. We get to share that together. Church family, when Jesus said, I am the bread of life, he was obviously using bread as a metaphor for himself. But he was also using bread as the metaphor because people could relate to this. They really could relate to it easily. Everyone knew about bread and its place and its importance in people's daily life. And if this crowd could just think beyond their stomachs for a few moments, they would realize that what Jesus was saying about himself and what he was saying about them was, you need me. You really need me. I truly believe this miracle of feeding the 15,000, while it demonstrates Jesus' power and it met a real need that those people had, Jesus really did that miracle simply to set up this moment at the synagogue where he could talk about himself. That's why he did that miracle. I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So what was Jesus really saying? What was he actually saying? Near the bottom of your note page, here in part is what he was saying. We'll add to this as we go forward through the next few weeks, but here's a good start. The first thing Jesus was saying was this. You simply cannot live without me. Would you say amen to that? 
You cannot have real life without me. I'm essential to you. In Jesus' day, bread was the food staple of the people. It was the centerpiece of every meal. Breakfast, lunch, dinner, and at snack time, it was bread. Everybody got it. You know, I'm married to a bread lover. I mean, a real bread lover. She could easily, by her own admission, make a meal out of just bread. My wife loves bread. The fresher, the warmer, and with the, the freshest real butter. Oh, oh, yeah. That's like dessert for Lisa. That's dessert. But you know what? As much as Lisa loves bread, she eats bread as a complement to a broader, much more complete meal because she can. She has that option. In Jesus' day, bread was not a complement to the meal. It was the meal. It was the centerpiece of the meal. It was essential for life. It was the staple in the people's diet. Bread was like, like rice is in many cultures today. I understand that in some locations where rice is the staple of the people's diet, it's boiled, it's fried, it's mashed, it's baked, it's barbecued, but there's always going to be rice at every meal. In fact, in some of these cultures, Bible translators go into those cultures and they translate this verse, John 6, 35, by substituting the word rice because the people will get it. Somehow to hear Jesus say, I am the rice of life, just doesn't work for me. But I'm not from a rice culture. But in that culture, with those people, that would make perfect sense, wouldn't it? Sure it would. What Jesus is saying is, I'm absolutely essential. You can't have real life that lasts forever if you don't have me. I'm the one thing that you can't do without. And it's so, it's so tragic to think how many people are trying to live life right now without the living bread. You have friends. I have friends right now who are trying to live life without the living bread. They think that they can not only survive, but that they can actually thrive without Jesus. And they do, after a fashion, manage to do that. But, but it's a life totally locked into a, a physical, material, time-space world. That's it. And it's such a short time, isn't it? We get such a short time. They get duped into thinking that because they have the food and the clothing and the home and the cars and the good job and the wife and the husband and the family and other friends who believe like they do, that they're just doing okay. They don't need Jesus. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. You cannot live without me. I am essential to you. But by saying I'm the bread of, the li- bread of life, Jesus is saying more than just I'm essential. He's also saying, I'm absolutely right for everyone. 
I'm right for everyone. Jesus says, sinner, I'm absolutely right for you. For you. In other words, there's a, a universal kind of worldwide application that Jesus is making as he takes on this title. We all know that not everyone can eat everything, right? We're, we're aware of that. People can have some, some really serious food allergies. Some people can't eat chocolate. And we need to pray for them, <laughs> right? Some people can't eat shellfish. Some people can't eat, can't eat other things. But you know what? Most people in the world can eat some kind of bread because there are so many grains that can be made into bread that really nobody gets left out. And Jesus is saying the same thing with respect to himself. You're a sinner. Your sin separates you from a holy God, but I am the bread of life. I have what you need. I'm absolutely right for you. No exceptions. No allergies. Once again, verse, 20, verse 33. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life, what? To the world. That's everybody. To the world. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Reference to the cross. I am the bread that gives life to the world. That's, that's inclusive. Nobody gets left out. You can have Jesus if you want him. He'll be perfect for you. I'm absolutely right for everyone. And then third, by saying, I am the bread of life, Jesus is saying, I long to be part of your daily diet. Oh, would I love to be part of your daily diet. Now here we kind of turn a corner because these first two ideas, the bread is essential and, and it's right for every sinner, that kind of points to our initial need for salvation. But when we observe that the bread of life must be eaten daily, well, now we're talking about trusting Jesus not only initially, but then being in relationship every day, growing with him, dining on him every single day, trusting him not just for our salvation, but also for our growth every day. From the moment we meet Jesus onward, we're growing and feasting on him. Nobody in Jesus' day or in our own just eats bread once and never has to eat again, right? You have to eat again and again and again. Eating is something that we do. Two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten times a day. <laughs> in fact, when you think about it, the, the, the very reason that this crowd follows Jesus across the lake and wants him to produce more bread was because of the fact that yesterday's bread doesn't work for today. You need more bread. If the body doesn't get its food, it begins to eat itself, and eventually it will die if it doesn't eat. Fellow Christian, if our physical bodies need daily food to survive, how can that not be true of the spiritual life that we have? Jesus, as the bread of life, is saying, you need me, Christian. You need me every single day, not just Sunday morning, 
Not just midweek at your life group. You need to be with me every day. You know, I was sad to learn. I went looking for this this week just because. I was sad to learn from the most recent statistics that among professing Christians in the American church, only 13% would say that they are in the word of God every day. 13% of the church. The average believer, get this, spends about 60 to 90 seconds a day in some kind of specific prayer time where Jesus is the focus. A minute and a half a day. Some might call that a starvation diet. And we wonder why the church struggles, right? Jesus says, I am essential. I'm absolutely right for you, for everyone, for the world. And I want to be with you and in your life every single day. I'm the bread. The heart of Jesus here in this dialogue with this food-focused crowd is very clear. He so wants them to understand, truly understand who he is and what he offers. And that's what he wants for us. You know, underneath everything that Jesus says in this amazing portion of this gospel, underneath it all, there is a question that Jesus is asking. It's unspoken, but it's begging for an answer. Jesus is saying, are you hungry for real life? Are you hungry for real life? You can hear it. You can, you can hear the question. Again, under verses 33 to 35, Jesus says, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven, and he gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Are you hungry? Are you hungry? You can have me. You can have me. Are you hungry for real life? Let's pray together, church. Well, that is the question, isn't it? Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, that is the question. Are we hungry? Are we hungry enough to turn our attention away from our physical lives and our physical needs, which they're important, but they're not as important as our spiritual life with you? Are we hungry for you? Lord, for those of us who have known you maybe for many decades Oh, that we would hunger for you, the bread, every single day. Enable us to make you the priority. Help us. We do not want to be part of that large majority that never cracked the book open between Sundays. Every day, feasting on you. We don't want to give you a minute and a half of our attention Oh, we want more. Help us. Help us. And Heavenly Father, for the one who might be in our room this morning, who has yet to decide who you will be in their life, may today be the day when they discover that you're the bread, the bread of life, and that you offer yourself to any who will give their life to you in simple saving faith. We pray for that one or more than one who might be here today. 
Lord, we love you, but only because you loved us first. And all God's people said, Amen.